Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So one of the biggest questions I get, and it comes all the time, is how do I lay out my homestead? You know, you're dealing with a blank slate, or maybe you bought an existing farmstead, and you're trying to figure out where to put all the things and how they all come together. And it can be kind of formidable to sort through all that information. The problem is that there's not exactly a perfect formula for figuring that out. And so sometimes it can be really difficult just to give someone a simple one, two, three answer when it comes to the perfect homestead layout. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, which is the only salt I use for all my homestead cooking, canning, fermentation, and it's also the salt of our soda fountain restaurant. Since I can't grow salt myself, you know, obviously, I got to buy it somewhere. And I've learned that not all salt is created equal. Having the good stuff makes a really big difference in what you're cooking. And it does affect the flavor. I have loved Redmond for years because they mine their salt here in the United States. They use sustainable practices and it contains over 60 different trace minerals that not only make it taste really good, it's also better for you too. Now, I admit I am a complete salt nerd, so I buy mine in bulk, which just makes sense because it saves me a lot of money and salt doesn't go bad. So you can stash it in your pantry for a very long time. So if you want to give Redmond's a try, whether you're buying a shaker to test drive or you want to do a 25-pound bag like I do, head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt. And don't forget to use code HOMESTEAD to save 15% off. Now back to our episode. However, what we can do is give you some big picture ideas and some things to think about. And that's why I'm so excited about today's guest. Angela Ferrero Fanning is the creator of Axe and Root Homestead. I'm sure you've come across her content. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. Uh, And she has a brand new book out called The Sustainable Homestead, where she gets into a lot of these topics. And so as I was looking through this brand new book, I thought it would be so fun to have her on and have this conversation. So welcome, Angela. Oh, thank you for having me. The pleasure is mine, Jill. Yeah, the book is fantastic. Uh, I'm super excited for it. And as usual, your stuff is so beautiful. It's like whenever I think of Axe and Root, I'm just like, it's so gorgeous. So your your graphic design eye, your photography. So well done on that. Thank you. That's really nice. I appreciate that very much. So I kind of want to just start at the beginning of this topic with the title of your book, actually, because I love that you call it a sustainable homestead. Um, and it made me, you know, not to get too granular, but it made me kind of think, what's the difference between a sustainable homestead and a non-sustainable one? Uh, Because I do think there's a difference that sometimes we don't often recognize. And I remember a while ago, I'm trying to remember where I I heard him say it, but Joel Salatin said that he's actually seen sometimes worse animal management on small farms and homesteads than sometimes even like confined animal feeding operations. And when he said that, I'm like, whoa, like I hadn't thought of it like that. So I guess long-winded way to, to ask you, what's your way that you think of a sustainable homestead versus the alternative? Yeah. So the sustainable homestead title was fitting for two reasons. You can kind of come at it from both angles, both the eco-friendly green side of things, and then also the other side, which is self-sustaining and not just um, degrading the land, making sure you have enough food. I mean, we can talk, the sustainable homestead is fitting for so many reasons. So let's go from the more literal side. Okay. So when, as as many homesteaders do, we are trying to um, be a little bit more self-sufficient when it comes to maybe where our food comes from. And you may have a myriad of reasons that you do that. Um, 
But I took a lot of pride in the fact that when COVID hit, we didn't have to go to the grocery store for months. And people here are fighting over toilet paper and dry goods that are on shelves and things are being wiped out, right? There was mass hysteria, if you will. And we didn't have to participate in that. Now, I think there's a facet of homesteading in itself called preppers or being a prep, you know, making sure that you're constantly in preparation for things. I don't really consider consider myself um, to be a prepper, but I like to know that I have enough canned goods on the shelf that my family and I will be comfortable in a situation like this for a while. And so the sustainable homestead, you can have the things that you need to be self-sufficient without costing the soil and your um, your ecosystem around you. And I think that sometimes farming gets a bad rap, especially as of late. But actually, there are a lot of farming practices that have done well, which are helpful to the environment. We need to think about the soil nutrient animal cycle. And when we have animals and soil and animals are ingesting nutrients and then giving it back through their manure, that is the cycle that helps to facilitate growth, which then helps the soil, which then absorbs carbon. You have to have these things. You have to have a balance. And when that balance isn't there, we end up degrading. We end up taking more than what we're giving back. And that is where we start to run into poor soil quality, bad water absorption, water runoff, and things just start looking pretty grim. You physically see it. You know, it's, it's there. It's very present. Um, so the sustainable homestead covers not only um, giving yourself a bit of a cushion in terms of being self-sufficient and making sure you have, you know, you're taking care of the land so that it can take care of you, but it's also making sure you're doing it in a sustainable way. You're being eco-friendly. I love Sorry, that. I love that there's <laughs> no, that was great. I love that there's the double meaning there. And I think that's really important that you're you're getting what you need while also making sure you're giving back to yeah. the, the the land in the process. Yes. You know, a lot of what I do here is permaculture. Um, there are some regenerative practices. Those are different things. But above all, like if you if you're familiar with permaculture, there's this whole tenet, and that is, if you are taking care of the land, it will be healthy enough and strong enough to take care of you, and then some. You'll be producing an abundance, not just enough to take care of your family, but to take care of your neighbors, your community. You can donate to food pantries. You can sell at a farm stand or a market. We shouldn't be taking anything away from the land in order to do that. If we're enhancing it and we're giving, we are going to get abundance in return. Yeah, I love that. I had uh, Rob Avis on a couple months ago here on the podcast. He's with the Verb Verge Permaculture, and he he had so much good to say. But one of the things that has stuck with me is he he had this principle called everything gardens, where he's like, we need to stop feeling guilty that you know maybe we're 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 gardening or we're, we're doing things on our farms, or our homesteads. And we're just like, it doesn't have to always be taking in essence. He's like everything in nature gardens in a sense. And he's like, there's so much we can do that does not just less harm, but does more good. And when he said that, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like why did I never think of it like that before? Like there's so much we can do. Like you said that we're, we're putting deposits in the bank and it's going to pay off so much more in the long run. Then we have that versus having just that exploitive mindset all the time. Yeah. And I, I think just in its human nature, right? As human beings, we think that we have to be in control of things and that we have to be doing it in order for us to get, we have to be doing. And that's actually not the case. Mother nature will always be in control. 
right? And we can facilitate pasture rotation. We can facilitate the homestead ecosystem and what animals we're bringing in and the crops that we're planting and perennials and soil and blah, blah, blah. You know, we can facilitate all of that. But really, we're not in control at all. Nature will always win out. You can see that even in cities when you walk on sidewalks and you see weeds growing up through the cracks. It's always going to take it back. Yeah. I think thinking of ourselves as a facilitator is so powerful. And I know I have a hang up personally where I feel like if I'm not like grinding it out and like gritting my teeth and making it happen, like it's not, I didn't like earn it, which is so not how this works. And I have to catch myself from doing that in my my businesses. And I catch myself doing it on the homestead, like, well, if it's not hard, it must not be working. And that's just like, it's not true. I love the idea of facilitator versus like enforcer, right? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And enforcer is a great word for it. Like sometimes we just can't force a square peg in a round hole. And that's what kind of uh, uh, sustainable permaculture farming, you know, that's what it all comes down to. We're not all going to grow the same crops. We all don't have the same microclimate. We don't even have the same landscapes. My landscape is different than my neighbor. I'm on a hill. They're not, you know, and so there's there's just so many things that come into play with setting up your site that aren't a one size fits all. And they never, ever will be. It's not supposed to be. Everybody is supposed to have different solutions because we all have unique farms and homesteads. Yes. And so much freedom in resting in that instead of thinking it has to look like your neighbor or the person on Instagram or whoever, like let it be different and let that be your strength. Yeah. I mean. Pinterest is very inspiring, but it can also be very evil and it can be it can. A very, it's such a distraction for people, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. Okay. So that's a great, to bring us back here to this question of this layout concept. So let's say we have someone listening, um, probably more than just a couple someone's probably quite a few who are either looking at buying a homestead soon or they bought a homestead recently. Maybe it's a blank slate. Maybe it has buildings or structures on it, but they're kind of in that paralysis of like, now what? I got the dream, but I don't know where to go next. So what would be the very first thing you would tell them? So the first thing you need to do is put on blinders and stop looking at what everyone else is doing. Because <laughs> yep. if you try to do what everyone else does, some of it might work just out of pure luck, but chances are it's just not going to pan out. And so the best thing you can do for your own efficiency, your own peace of mind to save energy costs is to just stop and assess your site. Because like we just mentioned, everything is so um, microclimate specific, even down to the house on the street. And it doesn't matter if you're in an urban backyard. I know people who have mini homesteads on balcony high rises in metropolitan areas, like they keep bees and container gardens. The point is you need to stop and assess what's going on at your own place. And the way that we do that is it's very hard for me too, because I love to hit put boots on the pavement and get going is to try to take one year, one of, of every single season to visually gather data measure rainfall if you can, measure the soil in your nutrients, you might be thinking you need to add, add nitrogen and you really don't need to add any nitrogen at all. And an overabundance is going to be just as bad as if you didn't have it. Um, so we, we're gathering data, but we're not just gathering, you know, sort of these scientific pieces. We're also looking at what's going on in the ecosystem around you. Where, if you have a, a path for wildlife, where do the deer run through? Where are the fox congregating? Where, do, where are they likely to put their dens? Do you have owls? Because if so, they're going to help your rodent population, and you might not need to bring in as many cats as you otherwise thought you would. And then if you bring in too many cats, 
and that there's going to be like totally this competition for for rodents for their forage, right? And then what's going to happen? Well, then they're going to start going after your ducks and chickens, and you're going to have that issue. It's all about really visually um, understanding where everything is residing in terms of wildlife, any any snowdrifts, any water runoff, any pooling. We need to see and we need to understand those um, issues and how they function from season to season. But then we still do need the measurements, like I mentioned before, with knowing what your soil structure is made up of. What does the nutrient panel look like? So we really want to gather as much data as we can. Um, you might not have as, sun, as much sunlight as you think you would. If you moved into the property in winter, those trees are going to fill out and they're going to fill out fast come spring. All of a sudden, you could have a shade garden when you were thinking you might have cold sun. So these are things that we really need to know because believe it or not, your landscape is going to dictate where it makes sense to put outbuildings, gardens, animals. It, all the information is there. We just have to be open to looking at it. Great advice. And I, I yeah, <clears throat> it's so good. I, I so struggle with this because I like, like you said, I like to just go, let's like dig something. Let's plant, let's plant something. Let's put a fence in. Um, and people have heard me tell this story more than once. Like the time we we had to move a fence line three times because we didn't think through like where we wanted it and where the tree row would go and how the flow of the property would would pan out. So, so worthwhile to have that self-discipline and just watch. Well, there's other things too that that don't have to do with the actual landscape, but more just like your day-to-day -day routine. If you find when you move into your property, you think that you're going to want to garden all the time, but then maybe it's a different season of life where you have really young, young kids. You're not going to be able to garden all the time. Do you really need to prioritize having your garden location right next to your front door in that first season? Um, is there something that might make more sense on your day-to-day -day chore route that could save you a lot of time? So we also need to think about efficiency. And then we need to think about access. You know, I drive Clydesdales. The original barn that I wanted to put them in, that would have been a logistical nightmare for getting those big booties in and out of the doorways because they're short and they're narrow, those doorways are. So I needed to move them somewhere else. And so sometimes we just need to pay attention to daily chore routes, function, and just do we want to spend all of our time driving compost from the horse stall to the far back corner of the property? And then once it's done, do we want to spend all that time driving it back to the garden and other growing spaces? Probably not. And so I myself am moving my own, you know? Yes. Yes. I like the efficiency piece because I think people do underestimate. I know there's that kind of honeymoon stage of a brand new property or maybe a, a new project where you're like, it's okay if it's hard harder than I thought it would be because I'll just be so excited to do this every day, um, whether it's hauling water or hauling compost or walking out to the North 40 to do something. And I, I, pr I promise you that you will get tired of it faster than <laughs> you think once the honeymoon wears off. Like hauling little buckets to, to water your trees isn't as much fun on, on day like 390 as it is on day one. Yeah, or you bring up a good point. Like maybe there is a, a place where you could have a garden or an orchard or something, but maybe eventually you could afford or could have the time to put irrigation in. Keep that in mind. Like what are the long-term plans? And again, this doesn't mean to, to get completely overwhelming. Like, oh my God, I have to know all of this before I could put a garden in. No, you don't. But this is why we spend time observing and formulating goals and kind of yeah. streamlining our thought process. Because if we have that stuff done, it makes all of the other fundamentals of laying out the homestead so much easier. Absolutely. So let's say someone has the data gathered, they've done their homework, they have their information, and now they have this plethora of options in front of them. 
the gardens, the chickens, the ducks, the horses, the cat, like, how would you advise them to take next steps? Well, I think it's, it's your farm goal, your farm intention. What is your priority? Um, you know, if you have uh, growing produce and selling at a market as the forefront of sort of what you want your homestead portfolio to be, that would make sense that you would start getting market gardens in place. And what does that look like? Do you need to bring in soil and compost? Do you need to bring in irrigation? Do you need to bring in row cover and, and hoop houses and high tunnels? Um, maybe that's not going to be as important for someone, though, who might be wanting to uh, make goat's milk soap or lotion. Okay, so then maybe instead the priority is going to be getting goats in there and looking at what natural forage you have and what's going to be conducive to certain breeds so that you don't have to have as much hay costs incurred. Maybe then you can help offset that with some of the native forage you already have. Or maybe you can't have goats at all. Maybe sheep are going to be better. So if that's the case, what could you do with sheep? And so really it just sort of becomes, okay, here's my landscape. And hopefully in purchasing a property, you went into it knowing kind of what you wanted to do with your homestead, right? But here's your landscape. You have it. You've moved in. Okay, what's your primary focus then? Because I tap maple syrup and I have bees, but tapping syrup and harvesting honey are not priorities for me. For me, the priority is the self-sufficiency and, and growing food. And so everything that I've brought in all sort of circumvents that main goal. That makes sense. And I liked how you talked about the zones in your book. Can you go over that really quick in terms of layout yeah. or like my, maybe how you prioritize? Yeah. So we kind of talked about efficiency before, right? And so there's, there's this concept in permaculture farming where we want to lay things out in a way that's most efficient for the farmer or the grower. And so we look at where that we spend the majority of our time. And usually, depending on what permaculture school you're looking at, zone zero or zone one would be your house. And so that's going to be where you spend pretty much your entire day, you know, in terms of when you're at home. But then the next thing you want to look at is, okay, outside of my house, where do I want to spend the next most amount of my time on my property? Well, if you're going to be doing farm chores every day, and you know that you need to go to the stable or to see the goats, or you want to go to the garden every day, You'd want to look at your sort of property, like if you were at a bird's eye view, and say, where can I put those items that I'm going to be going to constantly so that they're quick access from the house? Do I want to be able to see them when I look at my window and make sure, you know, oh, there was a noise at the barn. Can I just check out and make sure everything is okay? And so that's going to be your next zone. And again, just depending on the, the permaculture schools, so that's going to be zone one or zone two. And we keep adding these different zones. They increase in number based on frequency of when you visit them. But the last zone is we want to try and leave space open for nature. And so that would be zones five or six. And those are places you're not really going to frequent at all. Sure, they could be horseback riding trails or hiking trails, but it's not something you're going to intervene with. And again, this is where most people tend to put their compost heaps, is in a zone that they otherwise wouldn't go to. And then they say, well, how come I have raccoons? You know, well, that's a management problem. But aside from that, it's because you put it in a wildlife area where the traffic isn't frequenting. And so it's just thinking about, okay, if I want to lay out my homestead, it makes sense that I'm not going to make myself walk four miles to do something and then have to come back and have to do that three or four times a day. I mean, it's great exercise, but farming on its own is great exercise. <laughs> you don't need the added sure. hike. Yeah. I like that. I think just those little things, I think, there's so often that I know for myself, you just kind of, 
you get into ruts in your thinking and just don't stop just to, to sit back and go, um, what is this going to, is this going to be efficient? Is this going to be feasible? Is this going to be long-term? And I think just those little bits of, of rumination can take you a long way as you're building your homestead or, or expanding your homestead. Yeah. And it really helps with, you mentioned that, you know, when you introduced the podcast, it helps people who have already been established, but maybe things just don't feel like they're working and they don't have the luxury of starting from scratch, but they feel like, God, you know, I'm burnt out. This is getting overwhelming. I'm going here, here, here. Take some of the burden out of it and reevaluate your efficiency level on the way that you've actually laid out the site. Chances are there's some room for improvement. Yes. And I can attest after having lived in this property for almost 15 years, I guess. Holy moly. Um, you can redo things. Like we do that all the time where we're like, oh, we didn't know very much a decade ago. So we're going to do it better now. We're going to tweak this or we're going to adjust this. And I think I almost enjoy that just as much, if not more than the actual building. I just love the refinement of I know better now. I can do better now. And that's really rewarding to um, be able to make those little adjustments. Agreed. Yeah. Definitely. There's a problem solving and a creativity that comes with that, that I think is sort of, um, well, it's, it's fuel, right? Like it's yes. exciting. It's energi energizing. Totally. Yeah. I want to take a minute to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, Redmond Agriculture, because they solved a major problem for homesteaders like us. And that is soil testing. In the past, it was kind of a feat to get your soil tested. You either had to do complicated tests, you had to find an obscure website online, or you had to drive to some university to drop off your sample. And Redmond's eliminated all of that trouble. You might remember me talking about them last year because they were the ones who helped me do the detective work on my potting soil drama. And if you missed all that, you can go back to a previous episode to hear that saga. But I have been in love with their kits ever since. And whether you're listening to this episode in the spring or the summer or the fall, there's really no bad time to test your soil. The more you know about what's going on in the earth under your feet and under your plants, the more empowered of a gardener you will be and the better your harvest will be as well. So to give their soil tests a try, they are super easy to use and extremely inexpensive. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash soil test. And if you use code homestead, you can get 15% off your order. Now back to our episode. So let's say someone has a property, whether it's new or one they've had for a while, that maybe has been, I don't know the right word, abused or had poor farming practices done to it in the past. Maybe it was commercial monoculture, monocropping. Uh, maybe there was a lot of herbicides or pesticides. Do you have advice for them on how they can start reclaiming and healing that property? Yes. And I have had to do this myself to quite a degree. Um, I had a lot of dead clay soil, so tough I couldn't get a shovel through it. Like we're talking mm. standing on it, slamming it down and it, it was completely dead. So um, this is where we start looking at maybe some of the farming practices that could be more detrimental that we might be used to and looking at what happens in nature that why is that soil over there so lush and why is it so healthy and what is happening even though it's all on the same property. So an example that I actually use in the book is okay in said scenario, I'm trying to dig a tree and it, I can't get through this soil for the life of me, but just, you know, several hundred feet away, there's a little like natural spring. There's an oak tree. I'm seeing a fruit tree. 
there's all of this lush growth. The soil looks like chocolate cake. Like it's, it's fluffy. It's got amazing tilt and like everything just that grows out of it seems to be thriving. So how is it that I can be so close and be experiencing this? And the answer is one, there's a polyculture system in place. There's a myriad of plants growing all together that are helping each other access nutrients, fix nitrogen, absorb nutrients from deep within the soil layers, bring it up and make it more soluble and easier to access for other trees. Um, there's things that are helping to repel unwanted insects and attract beneficial ones. In short, this is an entire little natural ecosystem that has established itself. And look at what it has done to the soil. So taking a look at that and sort of trying to understand and study what is happening, what, what are the mechanics of this, you can start using things like cover crops and animals if you're talking about a pasture space or even a future garden site. So there are plants that are called phytoremediators, phytoremediation. Their job is to fix soil. Willow trees are one of those. And I think alfalfa is another one. You can plant crops that not only fix um, nutrients into the soil, but they help to clean it in a sense. Mm. And then when you start using things like mulch, those little roly polies, those pill bugs, they detoxify, detoxify soil of heavy metals, which I think is incredible. And I just love to geek out over that idea. Yes, so when you start cool. bringing, it's so cool. So when you start bringing in plants and mulching and doing things that nature already knows how to do on its own, the soil starts to improve. And then I touched on this whole animal soil nutrient cycle. When you start allowing animals to graze, it not only increases growth, but their waste that they drop creates humidity, which in turn creates a few inches worth of a microclimate on top of the soil surface. And so then what that does is it facilitates microbial growth within the soil, it jumpstarts mycorrhiza, and now we have this whole organism um, ecosystem that's going on underfoot. And this isn't something that happens overnight. This is something that if you look, Mother Nature takes a while to reestablish on her own. It's going to take seasons of growth, if not years, and mixing different cover crops to do different things and attract different uh, beneficial insects. But that's sort of just going back to facilitating what Mother Nature already knows how to do, right? We're just bringing in the things based on our growing zone that are compatible, based on our soil type, or based on our goals for what we want that soil to look like. And then eventually you will have a really nice grazing space, or you will have a really nice pasture space that you could convert into a garden or an orchard. I like that. I like... Um... I think in the somewhere in the book, I can't remember which chapter, but you talked about ticks and how you were having troubles with ticks. And I think I promise there's a correlation here, but I, the reason is I thought of this is because all too often we talk, at least in our modern paradigm, when we're, we have a problem, we talk, we want to subtract, right? How do I yeah. take something away to fix my problem? Whereas I think this more permaculture mindset invites us to sometimes add when we have the problem. And I loved how you said I had this tick issue instead of like, how can I go scorch earth on these ticks and spray it with a bunch of chemicals? You're like, I got guineas, right? Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, So you added the guineas and then they took care of the ticks, but it's kind of like what you were saying. It's not like, okay, I'm trying to fix this clay. How do I isolate this clay problem and just think about clay? You're like, no, think bigger, add in all the pieces and start seeing how the, the polyculture takes shape. And I think that's such a huge mindset shift for our modern 
way of thinking, especially around agriculture. It is. It's, it's, a, it's totally sort of an unlearning and reshaping of, I think, what tends to be the common approach. And, you know, we hear about no-till and all of these things. Well, the reason, the reason that people say no-till because it degrades soil is because what you're doing is you're breaking up all of the progress that the plant life and the perennials that have been around for years. You're breaking up that relationship that they have with the soil. And, and you know, humans are really starting to come to learn and appreciate more about that mycorrhizal network and how there's this response and, and call system between plant roots and the soil and the microbes, things that we can't see, right? So because we can't see it, a lot of times people assume it's not there, but that's just not the case. And so what happens is when you till and you break all this up and then you just look at it and you're like, well, I should just add nitrogen. You know, that seems to be such a common thing if we're just going to add. Well, when you have completely abolished that, that mycorrhiza, that cycle, you've removed it and it won't come back because now you just have a relationship between inputs like nitrogen or phosphorus or whatever you're adding and plants and they become dependent on that. They no longer have a relationship with something that already exists within the soil to help them facilitate nutrient uptake or water uptake even. So we don't just degrade the quality of soil. We actually eliminate an entire ecosystem when we do something like that. So by adding compost, cover crops, all those things, we're facilitating soil health. Yes. And I, I think probably in the last year, I've started to really understand what's going on. I mean, I've heard, you know, microbes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good mulch is good cover. I'm like, but I started to actually read more in depth this year. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is incredible. I had no idea how, and I don't think anyone really even fully understands how intricate it is down there and what's actually, you know, all the ins and outs of exactly what's going on. But um, it's given me a whole new appreciation for what I'm doing in the garden, not just for my own food production, but like, how can I be a better steward of what's going on in, in the soil? That's awesome. Yeah. So if someone, or well, I guess my first question is, do you do no-till and kind of what does that look like for you? Because I feel like I know for me uh, at the beginning and especially for others, it can feel kind of like this mysterious thing of like, how does that work? And what about hard ground and how, how does that work for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will take um, just the garden as an example. So uh, what I do is rather than think about scraping or tearing down, I think of it in terms of building up. And so we, we all see, you know, on social media, on Pinterest, we all see the cardboard method. It's popular not just because it's quick, but it works. And I've done it in large spaces. I've got a pretty good sized garden going. And if you don't have access to cardboard, you can layer newspaper. You can even use um, large rolls of craft paper. And what that does is that creates your first barrier to the weeds. And it's going to take a while to break down. And it chokes out the weeds because we're going to pile compost on top of that, several inches. And the thing about that original layer of cardboard, if you will, is that as it breaks down, that becomes organic matter itself. So now we've added two levels of organic matter just by laying some sort of paper substrate with um, the compost on top. Compost is not a fertilizer. People get very confused and they think, well, that's just adding fertilizer right on top. Compost is not fertilizer. It should be thought of as a soil conditioner. Compost is a solid. Plants absorb liquid. And so for them to get the nutrients from compost, it has to break down and it has to go into a soluble or a liquid form. So instead, you can think about all of your wonderful compost from your horses, if you're me, or your sheep, mm -hmm. or, you know, chicken bedding. Think of that as organic matter with 
a massive amount of microbes and mycorrhiza and nematodes. Because once those go on there, they're going to condition the soil that is now breaking down underneath, and they're going to penetrate that. They're going to give all of those microbes to that already existing lackluster soil or dirt even. And then this really great bacterial thing happens all on its own. And again, this is going to take years of adding compost, adding mycorrhiza. But this is how I build up. So we have our, our soil, we have our weeds or our grass, we add our paper substrate, we add our compost, and then we just start feeding. You can add Topsoil, if you feel you need to add more, make sure you know what's in that topsoil. Contact the garden nursery or whoever's delivering it. Get a good read on what is inside and what's been used in it. But then just start um, cover cropping, if that's what your plan is. Start growing your garden. And then the thing is, when things die out, let them die. We don't need to pull out everything yes. that is dead. Yep. In nature, when a plant dies, it falls over, it lays on the soil surface, and things break it down. And all of the good nutrients that are contained within the plant material return to the soil. That's what we want. So we hear all the time, well, you have to mulch and then you have to pull all these things out and create this sterile environment at the end of every growing season. It's actually not doing the garden any favors. We want to cover it with straw after we're done planting because that's going to retain moisture. It's going to prevent weeds and it's going to prevent solar, um, solarization of our soil. It's going to prevent erosion. But really what that's doing, again, is returning organic matter to the soil. Now think about all those layers we talked about. And if you continue to do that every single year, every time you grow a garden, you're adding more compost, more plants, more um, straw. I mean, you're going to create this really nice, porous soil. And you're just increasing it every single season. Meanwhile, Mother Nature is taking hold of everything on that bottom layer. Those plants or that grass has died because it's been choked out. And now things are starting to work their way downward. And so that's how we do the no-till here on the farm. So I think sometimes people get confused. And that was such a great explanation because they're just assuming you take your regular old garden that's in ground or in raised beds, it's just normal. And then one year you just stop tilling and it just like magically yeah. is just works. And I think that's where the confusion lies. So I think I love how you described it. It's a mounding, which then starts to sink down and, and do all that good stuff. So that I guess that makes sense then if you have those fluffier layers of the compost and the topsoil, if you use it and the straw, that's not going to be as compactive. That's not a word, but I just made it up. Com yeah, compacting exactly. <laughs> as, you know, as your, your whatever you have in your ground. So that right. that's a good visual. Yeah. Yeah. Think of it like a lasagna. Okay. It's lasagna. Yeah. I like it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So compost, I would love, yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about compost on this podcast and I, I mean, I feel like everybody kind of understands compost, but I'd love to get your nitty gritty of how you're, how you're making your compost, because I know you have horses. I have horses. Yeah. I have a heavy amount of horse manure in my compost pile, probably more than yeah. I should. I don't probably have enough carbon. So how do you balance that out? Or what do you, what's your recipe if for lack of yeah, a so word? I don't walk around with a scale or a measuring spoon. I'm not Thank so precise. <laughs> I'm not so precise about it. I'm not, I'm not like that about it. Here's what I do. We have the horse manure. In my stalls, I don't use pine shavings. What I use is the wood pellet bedding. And the reason I use that is because it's the fastest to break down, but it's incredibly okay. absorbent. So when it comes to Clydesdale output, it's really soaking up all of that moisture. When I'm taking shovelfuls from the stall and putting it into the wagon, I mean, I'm getting a fair amount of that now broken apart pine pellet bedding. And then I'm also getting the manure. And I chuck that out to my compost heap. 
when it reaches a certain height, I tarp mine. And the reason I do that is because it retains moisture within the pile and it heats it up. Now, anybody who has tried to um, use horse manure on their garden probably has come into contact with loads of grass. It's yep. so bad if it's not properly composted. So we need the temperature to go way up, and we do that through hot composting to kill the grass and the weed seeds. So then what we have after somewhere between six and nine months is really great soil. Now, I'm not going in, and I, I don't even turn it. You know, lots of people will spend time out there with thermometers and hoses adding moisture. I don't do any of that. I keep it and I cover it and it works. And so if you're finding that your compost heap smells, you likely have too much wet or nitrogen material, which is going to be your manure. Try adding more carbon. So that's like leaves, straw, bedding. Okay. And then the other thing is if you're finding that it's getting too dry, try tarping it. If it's still too dry, then you might need to bring in some supplemental moisture. That makes sense. Okay. That sounds more doable. I was really hoping you weren't going to say you're out there temping it three times a day. So thank you for not saying that. Like uh, some of this stuff, I feel like this is so much in homesteading. There's all these like artisan niches for all of the things we do, right? Like there's an artisan cheese world and there's artisan bread world and there's artisan garden world. And like we as homesteaders, we just kind of have to like, kind of like sit in the middle and go, I'm going to do a little bit of that, but not to the extremes of any of it because we drive ourselves crazy. Yeah. Do you think there's artisan composters? I have read some techniques, which I so admire. Like, I'm like, you are a rock star in the compost world, but I'm like, there's no freaking way that I am going to go into that much detail. And they like have percentages of the recipe of all the things that I'm like, cool, bro, you're amazing. But I I can't do that. I don't even know where to get half that stuff. So I mean, in day-to-day life, when you're just trying to knock out the chores. You're just trying to knock out the chores. Yeah. Yeah. There's no time. I can't do that. So anyway. That's doable. And then you're using that compost in your no-till cardboard technique. All that would things. be what you'd use? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I top dress my pastures and my grazing spaces with that. I um, I put that in the orchard each year. I put that in the garden every year. Yeah. Um, so that's our, that's our go. Honestly, I don't have enough of it. It's a good reason to get another yeah. horse. I tell my husband that totally he's not on board with that. That, that is that's not going to work out. I feel like that's completely legitimate. I don't know what his problem is. <laughs> obviously Bill <laughs> so, Winger said I should Winger be able says, to get one yeah get another horse I will always be the enabler on the horse purchases ask my okay. husband so. well, that's good <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay good stuff um I loved there was a section I guess it was a table in your book where you're talking about reading the weeds yeah I I have a little book on that but I'm so intrigued and I want to understand that more so can you explain what that means and how you do it Yeah. So, okay. There's this section of my book, read the weeds. And what it is, is you might have problem soil, but not really have a good idea as to what is going on. Well, one thing you can do is simply stop and take a look at what sort of quote unquote native forage is happening there. So certain things like burdock or dock is going to send down a long taproot. And the reason that nature is putting it there is because it's really moist soil. And it's not very nutrient dense. And so it's going to send a plant out to establish itself that will have a long taproot and pull up nutrients from deep within the soil sublayers and make it more available for the surrounding plants. So there's this whole chart in there that kind of says, all right, if you're seeing burdock, maybe this is what is going on. And maybe you can start bringing in some um, compost or amendments or other plants that help fix 
other nutrients that might be lacking in that particular soil panel. But dandelions, um, you know, that's that's one of them. We all love dandelions if we're in the homesteading world, but yes. they're a sign of a potential issue. They really like compacted soil. Violet, on the other hand, it's, again, it's beautiful, but that really loves moisture and also nutrient lacking spaces. So if you're if you're finding a lot of weeds consistently every single season and you're just kind of sick of pulling them, they actually might be there to tell you something. Yeah. Do you do you have lambs quarters where you live? Yeah. Those are? Do, yes. do you know, do you remember what those are telling you? Cause that's like my number one weed, which I have eaten them. I feel like they're a friendly weed. I don't hate them, but they're, they're everywhere. I want to say off the top of my head, that means that's a, that's a hydration issue, but I could be wrong. I don't remember. Mm. off the top Okay. Of my head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't expect you to be like the walking weed encyclopedia. I just was <laughs> throwing that I mean, out wouldn't there. that be amazing if I was? <laughs> That would be amazing. Then we'd have to have a whole nother episode and I would like quit quiz you on your weed knowledge. <laughs> we, we could have a little game show out of it. It'd be a game show. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So putting nutrients back in the soil, I think, again, this is somewhere where, where a lot of our modern thinking can be tweaked a little bit because we, we go, Oh, I have a, you know, let's say you get a soil test done. You're like, I have a, a phosphorus deficiency. So I'm going to go get phosphorus from the garden store and put it in my garden. What's yeah. another way we can think about that? Or what are some ways that you might put nutrients back in soil? I know you mentioned compost and there's, there's some of those techniques, but what are your favorite tricks for helping bring that soil back into balance in a holistic way? Sure. So rather than think about using um, compost as a fertilizer, we talked about that already. Absolutely, you can add it, but it's going to take a while for those nutrients to become available. We can look at plants to do those jobs for us. So if you're um, phosphorus deficient, or you have a potassium issue, you might want to look at comfrey. Again, anything with a long tap root is going to go really far down into the soil. But the other thing that's great about comfrey, and why a lot of permaculture people love it so much, is because it's a chop and drop plant. So as it grows, I'm actually about ready to do my first chop already. It's a quick grower. You cut it back, and use it as mulch. You can just let it mm-hmm. go right in place, or you can even put it on your garden beds. I put it around my garlic. And um, as it decomposes, it's going to return all that nutrients that it's mined back into your soil for you. So comfrey is a really great one. Um, radishes are really good ones with their long tap root. Um, and that's going to help with compacted soil. But then you have things like clover, which are great nitrogen fixers. You know, um, when I see clover in the garden, I do pull it, but I really hate pulling it because it serves as not only a nitrogen fixer, but it's a great weed cover, right? It protects the soil from those weed seeds being able to come down and establish themselves. And it helps to retain um, moisture within your soil. It's like a mulch. So clover is a really great thing to add. Um, When we start looking at the different properties that plants can add, you know, you start getting into things like polycultures and guilds. Um, If you are familiar with tree guilds, we use seven members, including the main fruiting tree, and we give plants jobs. We plant them around our main fruiting tree to do things for us, such as bring in those nutrients, repel things like we talked about earlier, attract insects. And you can start looking up things like polycultures. So for example, if you are in a dry climate, your polyculture for your tree is going to look different from mine. So you might be looking at something more like chicory for your taproot plant versus a burdock because we mentioned burdock really likes moist areas. And so we really need to pay attention to not only sort of these guild recipes, right, or these polyculture recipes. We need to keep in mind that, well, yeah, this might have a long taproot that takes that phosphorus for me, 
but is it even going to grow in my backyard? Is it even going to grow in my farm? And so we need to make sure that we are recognizing those nuances, especially if there's animals and livestock involved that might be accessing that area to graze. Um, that's when we need to start paying attention to all of those different little pieces. When I started experimenting with cover crops instead of growing grass for my animals, I wanted something that could meet the protein and, and crude or crude protein and nutrient requirements of my animals, but also help the soil. I decided to no longer grow grass. Well, there's this one called Piper Sudan grass, and I was really excited about growing it. It did so many wonderful things. But here's the thing. If you put animals on that after a frost, or before 10 a.m., it has too much sugar. Mm -hmm. And so Piper Sudan grass is not going to be a good idea for someone with horses like me, unless they are going to be very regimented about not turning out their stock until that sugar content drops. So there is a cover crop panel in there that talks about things that will fix nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, but also things that aren't going to be good for certain livestock, because that's a whole other facet of homesteading that you want to make sure that you're not mixing plants and animals that aren't supposed to go together. Yes. And you have some guild. Do I see some like guild recipes or, or layouts as well? Some groupings? Yes. Yeah. Okay. By yeah. fruit tree. Those are in there. Yeah. Yes. There was so much good info. Just like, I like the meaty, you know, I'm like the meaty stuff good. and it was, it was in there. So. Oh, good. Well, I good tried job. to make it yeah. meaty. <laughs> yes. Yes. Got, got to like it. Um, okay. So you mentioned animals and we're, we're running up on time. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too much longer because then you have a lot going on. But I'd love to hear some of your your best practices for incorporating animals into this mix. Because we've talked a lot about the soil and the plants and the cover crops, but where where do the critters come in? Yeah, no, I love that question. So everything that I have here has jobs and more than one job. Things don't come here because they're cute. Things don't come here because I just want to get photos with them. I bring my animals here to serve a purpose. So um the epicenter of what I do here is try to be more self-sufficient for our family with our food system. So the garden is going to be at the epicenter of everything that I bring in. I have honeybees here because, yeah, we get honey, but the real reason I have them is because they increase our yields with their pollination services. I don't even take that much honey, to tell you the truth. They get the majority of it. And so that's the bees' job, right? Wax, honey, but really pollination. Um so then when I started looking at bringing in horses, because I've always loved horses, wanted to have them to ride, I thought, well, what if I could get horses that could actually work for me? So I brought in the Clydesdales. Clydesdales are not only going to provide pulling power and companionship and all those wonderful things for me, but they're going to give me manure for composting. But the comp or but the Clydesdale in particular is a breed that's suited to my particular area of the United States. We have cold winters. I live in the mid-Atlantic, which is considered a moist climate. Clydesdales originate in Scotland, so that's a compatible match. I have a lot of forage here that naturally grows in terms of native grasses that they can eat. So the Clydesdale is a good fit for all of those things, not just the garden, but grazing in the pasture spaces that I have. So then I learned this really amazing thing. Sheep can help keep your horses healthy. And the way that they do that is when they're grazing in a rotational grazing system, they come through after my horses, and as they're grazing other parts of the grass that they prefer over the horses, they're ingesting the parasites that are coming from the horse's feces. Well, that's not the correct host for a horse parasite. So what ends up happening to that parasite? It dies. It's a dead-end host. But guess what? The horses do the same thing for the sheep because they have different parasite panel. And so they're the dead-end host, and they're reducing, greatly reducing, 
the need for dewormers, and they're helping to keep each other healthy. And again, they have a different forage panel than what the horses like. They eat different weeds that the horses might avoid. They eat a lot of the native grasses, and they also eat an entirely different part of the grass blade. So after I brought in the sheep, and yes, I get wool from them, but really they're just here because I love my horses and I want to keep them healthy. <laughs> then it was like, all right, we have a stream. Again, a very wet climate. I'm not a big fan of chickens. We brought in the ducks. And the ducks are more conducive to our landscape, but also I turn them loose in my growing spaces. Because we're a wet climate, they take care of our snails and our slugs. They eat up excess pill bugs. And the geese go with them because the geese protect the ducks. They act as alarm bells for overhead hawks and you know predators. But they eat the weeds left behind by the horses and the sheep. Weeder geese is a term for a reason. So now all of my forage is being eliminated while the ducks are going through the manure heaps and blowing it apart looking for insects and also ingesting parasites. Okay, so then we have the guinea fowl because I got limes, my dogs got limes, and it was like, we're done with this. Are the guinea fowl going to have more of an attraction to eating ticks than the birds that are already here? Absolutely. They seek them out. And they can also fly, so I don't have to worry about additional housing for them. They roost in the trees right above my poultry. Um, they actually don't require supplemental feed unless it's the dead of winter. And they really are eliminating our tick problem and keeping not only myself, but the entire animal population healthy. So that's why I have the animals that I do. Goats would not be a good fit. I don't have enough fibrous forage. I have grasses that grow here, thus the sheep. Um, but goats will do the same thing for parasite control. So you can see that everything really connects to the bigger picture. And then when we go back to soil, right, all of those different nutrients from the ways that all of those different animals digest and break down their forage is also being deposited into the soil. And that's really important. That's when we start getting into rotational grazing, balance, stock density. You can have great intentions, but if you're grazing way too many animals on your plot of land, that's going to be more harmful than good. So there is a balance to all of these things. It's not just about finding the specific breeds and the specific species. It's about making sure quantities are correct. And that's where you really have to start doing your research. Yeah. I like how you said they all have a job too. Cause I think that there's sometimes when new homesteaders, it's like you, they have this checklist of old McDonald's farm and we're just like going through the checklist. And I'm like, you might not need all those things. Like you might, like you said, ghosts aren't a fit for you. They might be a fit for someone else if they have more brush. So I think kind of thinking through, like we talked about at the beginning, just to bring it full circle, think through your goals and your plans and what your, your property wants and what your climate wants. And then take that into consideration with the animals. Absolutely. Like the because if you're not taking that into consideration and you are grazing all the four-legged furries, I mean, think about what your hay bale is going to look like, right? You're going to start yeah. increasing costs. And then if they're all turned out together in the same grazing spaces, well, what's your, what's your dewormer situation going to look like? What's the parasites, you know? So you need to really pay attention to, okay, what is, what is appropriate stocking? Because yes, we might want all the things, but going back to intention, just like you said, going back to the main goal, that's really going to determine what's, what's an appropriate fit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So are yeah. you rotationally grazing like with the, the little, um, the hot fences, the netting, or, how, or do you have like permanent fences that you rotate through? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have our main pasture spaces, which run on a solar charger. And that's what keeps the Clydesdales in, so keep, keeps the sheep in. In addition to that main fence um, with the wires, we've got um, the welded wire that goes all the way around. And then in between, the main fence area, the main pasture, I divide that up even further. 
My goal is trying to get each little parcel to be between one quarter and a half acre. Quarter is great because what that does for the quantity of animals that I have is it forces them to evenly graze everything and not favor some spots over others. Now, because I am multi-species grazing, if the horses leave something behind, I know the sheep are going to come through and eat it. But what I'm really trying to prevent here is horses from creating their bathroom spot and then creating their favorite food area and having all this uneven wonky growth. We want to make sure it grows really, really tall. Some of it gets trampled when they walk through. That's going to return the nutrients to the soil. We want to make sure that they're grazing as much as possible before I move them to the next parcel. So, yeah, I use that um, Premier One. Mm-hmm. What is that? Not Polyrave. What's that? Electronet. That's what I use. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's what I was picturing. So. Are you going like once, I know it's different for every um, climate, so I'm, I'm just curious. Do you go once like every day or you go a couple days per paddock or how often are you moving? Yeah, so it depends on the time of the year and how fast forage is coming in and how much water we're getting. Uh, so what we want to do is not introduce any animals to any area until grasses have reached um, 8 to 10 inches in height. And then if you're growing legumes like alfalfa or maybe veg, you'd want to wait till that gets 10 to 12 inches in height. And I will give my horses about two days uh, in the peak of spring on their parcel before I move them to the next. And then I bring the sheep in. At any point in time, if your forage starts to get below four inches, it's going to be considered overgrazed. And you want to pull animals off that space. The reason that we don't want it to get below four inches is not just because it's going to take longer to regrow, but actually you're going to open yourself up to parasites because those eggs are at the base of the blade. And as the animals get more and more close to that base, um, they're more likely to ingest the, that larva. And so it's going to take, like, I think it's an additional week. I think if your pasture rotating properly before it gets mm-hmm. overgrown, um, it only takes something insane, like a couple of weeks to regrow. But if you're actually letting it go down to overgrowth phase and have to regrow from that, you're adding on an additional week to 10 days for it to come back. And when we're trying to get off of supplemental hay, we want our animals to be outside. We want them to be having native forage. That's a lot of time that could otherwise be spent grazing that animal just because we weren't having proper management. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yep. Yep. Totally. Um, okay. Yes. Okay. One other random question, because I haven't had a lot of, I've had, I've had ducks, but I've never had a lot of ducks. Yeah. I've heard people say like you can turn them into your garden and they will just eat the bugs, but they won't cause damage is that tr- is that true <laughs> yes and no okay it all, comes I, back, yeah. it all comes back to management <laughs> goslings and ducklings obviously are not going to cause that much damage here's the trick you wouldn't want to do you wouldn't want to just turn the flock loose until you have well-established animals and you're probably going to want to mark off your lettuce because they're just going to walk right over that so any really mm-hmm. short low-growing crops will get trampled um but you want to turn them loose in a well-established area, but you don't need like 10 ducks in there to do that. I select a handful. So some of the girls get to go in and some girls are out in the stream that day. And then if I, you know, I'm, I'm really sort of monitoring the insect situation. So if I have a high prevalence of pill bugs, those girls are going to be in there for several days based on the size of my garden. But if I just see like a few, I would put them in there for a day and then they're not coming back until I see another issue, you know? Sure. Sure. Okay. Otherwise they That's will twinkle it. Yeah. Cause once that forage, yeah. once those bugs are gone, what are they going to eat? They're going to eat your plant. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what I had pictured, but I'm, you know, cause everyone's, um, we have slugs on occasion 
don't know where they yeah. come from because we're not a wet climate. I'm like, how are there slugs here? But there are slugs sometimes. And I'm like, ducks, but also do I believe the internet when they talk about ducks and slugs? So good to know. Proper management is the key as always. Always proper management. <laughs> always proper management. Okay. Yeah. So I will not turn them in willy-nilly, a, a herd no. of ducks. <laughs> do not willy-nilly, Jill. No willy-nilly. I will not do it. Okay. That is my takeaway from this interview. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Jill will not do willy nilly. Jill will not do willy nilly ever. Okay. Um, Oh my goodness. So good. Any other last words of wisdom for our proverbial listener who has their new property they're laying out and they're dreaming all the things for? Yeah, I can't stress it enough. The thing is, it's it's wonderful to be inspired by what others are doing, but at some point we have to realize that. Our site is our own, and if we are constantly trying to implement what others are doing, there's a, there's a chance it's not going to work, and we can't really be surprised by that. So the best thing that we can do for our own farm, our own homestead, is just to really bring it all back to home base and just observe what is going on around you. Nature is already there. You already have inhabitants in the wild and in the soil. They're all going to tell you what they need and where to put things. If you pay attention to that, and the rest just kind of becomes less of a distraction, maybe inspiring, but hey, those aren't necessarily our goals. We have developed our own for our own site. That's where we need to be. And and you're going to be much better off for that. Beautiful advice. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, where can people well, find you, first of all, if they're not already following you? And then where can they get your book? So my book, The Sustainable Homestead, is available anywhere you get books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, what have you. Um, I also have a little homesteader series, which helps families and kids to get into a homesteading mindset through every single season. So it's a four part series. Again, same thing, Amazon or any book retailer. My podcast is called Homestead Education. My home, uh, my homesteading co-host and myself, we just try to break down the fundamentals of homesteading, but also put in like real life conversation because things like grief and loss happen. How do you deal with that? Real life gets in the way sometimes. So, um, that's that, but. My Instagram are my Instagram handle, my YouTube handle, and uh, uh, TikTok is Axe and Root Homestead all across the board. The board A X E A N D Root Homestead. You can also find me at axeandroothomestead.com. Awesome, so guys, go check out Angela. If you, I'm sure most of you are already following her, but just in case you've never heard of her, she's worth a follow. So I know you'll love her content. Um, thank you so much for coming on. This was so good and enlightening. And I know that a lot of people are going to leave this interview with some good action items. So. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me.